Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 19th, 2013, and my guest is Scott Sumner of Bentley University and blogger at The Money Illusion. Scott, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks for inviting me. Now, Scott, I know you're working on a book on the basics of monetary policy, and I wanted to tap into that as well as discuss some recent posts at your blog, The Money Illusion. So we're going to talk about the basics, uh, and ideally we'll get toward the end into the interaction between monetary and fiscal policy and why you're so skeptical of some of the claims of Keynesian uh, supporters in discussing the stimulus. So I want to start with some very basics, though. You recently wrote that it's hard to argue that the business cycle is caused by real shocks, uh, and you gave some historical examples. Why is it hard to argue that real shocks cause uh, recessions and unemployment? Well, first of all, I should say that I'm talking about countries with large diversified uh, economies like the United States. Um, if you have a very, very small economy dependent on like one agricultural product, obviously a real shock could make a bigger difference there. Like a bad rain season, a, a drought. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also I'm, I'm focusing more on employment fluctuations than GDP. So you could measure the business cycle either as fluctuations in real GDP or fluctuations in employment. And in my view, it's fluctuations in employment that are really the key stylized fact about business cycles. So we think about the, the mystery of a, a depression is why are so many people unemployed when there's lots of things that need to be done and the people want to work and so on. So that's, I think, the biggest mystery that needs to be explained is big fluctuations in employment. Um, and I don't think real shocks can do that in the United States, by and large, can, can cause large fluctuations in employment. Um, I think they're, they're basically what I call nominal or monetary shocks, um, although not necessarily changes in the money supply per se, but uh, some sort of failure of monetary policy to keep nominal spending growing on a steady path. So, well, and, and as far as the historical examples, yeah, on the blog post I mentioned just a few things that people need to think about. I remember the 87 stock market crash, and there were a lot of, there was a lot of talk at the time about how it was similar to the 29 crash, and we're going into recession. And not only was there no recession, there wasn't even a tiny slowdown in the economy, not even a blip. And, you know, I think one of the things that points to is that I don't think like something like a stock market crash by itself would cause a recession unless it was accompanied by a failure of monetary policy. Um, I mentioned the Japanese tsunami had almost no impact on the unemployment rate in Japan. Um, doesn't show up in the data at all. Um, these are big shocks. You know, the, the, that's the biggest natural disaster to hit a developed country probably in my lifetime. And the 87 stock market crash was certainly the biggest crash over a short period of time, a period of about six weeks. I think the stock market lost about 45% of its value, something like that. So those are, but those are just two examples. So yeah, I guess the next right. thing to do would be and to the, look at the big swings in employment, unemployment, 
and ask whether they were preceded by a supply shock, and it's hard to see what those would be. Well, there one thing some people will point to is you know the the energy shocks, and and in my view, it's a little bit hard to disentangle the the monetary aspects and the and the energy aspects of the 1970s. Uh, we we know that monetary policy was to blame for the high average rate of inflation during the 70s. But the energy shocks certainly, you know, created some variation in, in the inflation rate. But even there, I think probably monetary factors were the biggest uh, problem um, in terms of fluctuations in employment. There are certainly lots of other things that made the economy less efficient, like price controls and so on. But I don't think those are as important for the business cycle. And let me also point out for especially your listeners that are uh, sort of free market oriented like myself. Uh, I think there's a tendency sometimes to engage in wishful thinking. If you don't like a lot of bad government policies that are happening at the time, your, your tendency is to attribute economic distress in terms of the business cycle to those bad policies. But we had under uh, Lyndon Johnson an enormous increase in the size and scope of government. And yet, you know, the 60s were a boom decade. So, you know, in the, in the long run, some of those policies have come back to perhaps hurt us in terms of efficiency, uh, you know, our medical care system and so on. But uh, I don't think there's much evidence that that sort of thing really explains the business cycle to any great extent. And you also mentioned that, which I thought was a nice point, I think it's often forgotten because people don't pay careful attention to dates that the collapse of the U.S. housing market between 2006 and 2008 uh, right. was not followed by a sharp rise in the unemployment rate. Was not accompanied by, right. So if you take the peak of the housing um, boom was about January of 06, unemployment was 4.7. And then 27 months later in April of 2008, housing construction had fallen in half, but unemployment was still 4.9, which is really a very low rate. And the reason for that is the rest of the economy is doing fine. So as jobs are being lost in housing construction, we are picking up jobs in commercial real estate and exports, manufacturing services, all sorts of other sectors. So the overall unemployment rate wasn't changing that much. I mean, the, the GDP growth was slowing a little bit, but it was still positive. Um, and then in the second half of 2008, when nominal spending fell very sharply, in fact, at the sharpest rate since the Great Depression, uh, that's really when it spread to other sectors, commercial, real estate, manufacturing, services. All of them started losing large amounts of jobs, and that's when unemployment doubled from 4.9 up to 10%. So, um, yeah, I think that if you look closely at the data, you find that even a, a sizable sector of the economy, like residential real estate, which was 6% of GDP at the peak, uh, a decline in that sector really isn't enough to create a recession if you have stable monetary policy that keeps nominal spending growing at a slow but steady rate. And it just comes back, uh, the way I think of this puzzle of the labor market and its variability and how hard it is sometimes to find a job. Mm. In, in the 1990s, if you got laid off or you were tired of your job and you quit or you were a senior in college going out in the job market, there were lots of jobs. And that was true up until about 2001 that being laid yeah. off or quitting was not a traumatic experience. It, it's not fun, but you were pretty confident. I think most people would be confident in those times, true in the 80s as well, that, oh, I'll find another job. 
But right now, that doesn't it doesn't feel that way, and I don't think it is that way. Something's different. Right, and I think you know I attribute this to the the nominal spending or nominal GDP shock that hit us in '08 and '09. Uh, for uh, over a 12-month period, we had a 4% fall versus a trend rate of 5% increase. So really, our nominal GDP growth was about 9% below the trend between mid-08 and 09, and that just had a devastating effect on the job market. I like to use the metaphor of a game of musical chairs. So yeah. if you visualize that, if you have 100 people and 100 chairs, everybody has some place to sit down when the music it stops. Might, it might take a while to find them sometimes. It might not be right. in a neat circle, but they're around. Well, yeah, that, and that fits in. That's a nice uh, supplement because that fits into how the job market uh, you know, does have this informational problem, the search process. But they eventually do find them, usually fairly quickly. Now, if you suddenly take away, say, four or five chairs, then you know a bunch of people are going to be sitting on the floor. And the way I look at the job market is that nominal wages tend to be kind of sticky or slow to adjust. So when there's less total spending in the economy or total net nominal income in the economy, but people are paid about the same amount per hour, there's going to be fewer hours worked. And that's your recession, basically. So you have roughly the same pay per hour, uh, a smaller amount of total money circulating and expenditure in the economy, that is a smaller amount available to pay workers, so there'll simply be fewer hours worked. Instead, of the, eventually, instead of the eventually, alternative, the wages would fall and people could keep right. their jobs with smaller hours. Right, but that doesn't really happen very smoothly, and it certainly happens in some sectors. You can find really hard-hit sectors where workers have taken pay cuts, but there's many, many sectors that are quite large, like my own, where we haven't had any pay cuts at all. We've just had a slowdown in the rate of increase. And I think, you know, not just education, but healthcare and many other sectors that aren't hit as hard have relatively inflexible wages, and so the overall wage level in the economy does not adjust when nominal spending grows 9% less than trend over 12 months. What we've had since then is some adjustment in wages, and as the adjustments occurred, the unemployment rate has slowly fallen from 10% at the peak to 7.7. So you could say maybe it's halfway back to normal. Uh, and I think that, you know, along current trends, we would probably see further adjustments in wages, further slow growth. You know, we're seeing 2% growth in wages instead of the normal three or four, and that is gradually healing the labor market, but it's healing it more slowly than if we'd had steady growth in nominal spending. So I need to ask some um, some clarifying questions because mm -hmm. it's, it's slightly embarrassing. Well, it's embarrassing in lots of dimensions because, you know, I've had you on before and I've probably asked some of these questions before, but well, I, like, I like to think I get a little smarter as the months go by and it's not always, sometimes that's that's... That's the uh, econ talk illusion, maybe. But anyway, um, when you say that nominal income or nominal spending, first let's clarify for some listeners, that means denominated in just in actual dollars, not corrected right. for inflation or anything like that. Exactly. So, so when the total volume goes down, you know, you're talking about like it's an independent thing. Isn't that just a different way of saying we're in a recession? It sounds like you're saying that recession. Uh, good question. Yeah, I so, get that a, a, a lot. <laughs> But that's that's actually not the case because um, okay, a couple examples. Uh, we all know about the big hyperinflation in Zimbabwe, 
recently or in Germany earlier on. Now, obviously, their nominal GDP was going up dramatically. And and yet, if you look at the real side of the economy in Zimbabwe, it was doing very, very poorly. You could probably call it a recession. So I don't think that you can simply look at the ups and downs of nominal GDP and say, well, that's automatically a business cycle so that I'm just talking in terms of a tautology. Uh, A lot of people think that when I first explain that nominal shocks cause business cycles, they say, well, isn't a fall in nominal GDP just a recession? So, you you know, you're saying a recession causes a recession, right? It sounds that way, but actually a recession would be better described as a fall in real GDP and monetary power or nominal GDP, I think is better described as sort of stance of monetary policy. Now, it is true that um, in the long run, these two are sort of independent of each other. So printing money doesn't really, in the long run, make a country richer. And reducing the money supply probably does not make it poorer in the long run. But what happens is because wages and prices are sticky, you get these short-term cyclical effects from fluctuations in nominal GDP. So if you believe that this correlation is very strong, and, and, and your question actually presupposes a stronger correlation than even I'm claiming. So you're sort of saying, aren't real and nominal GDP always closely correlated with each other? And I would say to that, not quite always. There, there could be uh, hyperinflation where a breakdown, or there could be such an enormous real shock that you could have a fall in GDP real terms, even without a fall in nominal. That could happen, and it does happen in small countries. But what I would say is this. For the United States, yes, they are so closely correlated that that raises the question of, well, could we then smooth out the fluctuations in real GDP by smoothing out the fluctuations in nominal GDP? And then the second part of that question is, can monetary policy deliver low but steady growth in nominal GDP. Yeah, those are the those are the two key questions. Right, and those before, are the two. Before we get to those, uh, let's do a little bit of history of economic thought, uh, very recent history of economic thought, the last, say, 60 or so years. So we go back to the early work of Milton Friedman. He would argue, I, I think he argued, that the quantity of money um, in the short run had real impacts on the economy. And I'm rephrasing, I think, what you just said. Mm-hmm. In the short run, it could have real effects. And in the long run, it had very little. Or it could be destructive, but it it, it was um, it tended to work through the nominal values, right. through the prices, not through real output changes. And inflation in and of itself can be destructive to decision-making. So that's the sense in which it can have real effects. But what he really was saying is that short-run effects of money are real and long-run effects are only nominal. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, and my, my views are very similar to Friedman's in many respects. Um, and the one difference would be that he focuses more than I do on the actual money supply. I focus on um, what is sometimes referred to as the money supply times velocity. So some of your listeners may have seen the famous equation of exchange, MV equals PY. And the total spending in the economy is the amount of money in the economy times its velocity of circulation. So the early monetarists like Friedman tended to assume that velocity would be fairly stable if monetary policy was stable. So if they just had M grow at 4% a year, that would keep 
total spending on a pretty stable path. What because, I because V would be stable, so pretty MV stable, would be right. stable, and then PY the nominal value. The of other income, side, yeah, which is the nominal value of income or expenditure, would be also stable. And the our group, that's sometimes called market monitors, tend to focus instead of uh, on the money supply itself on just the total amount of spending M times V. And so what we're trying to do is we're not trying to rigidly stick to a steady growth path for the money supply, but rather adjust the money supply as needed to offset any changes in velocity in order to keep that total spending a path of nominal GDP pretty stable. And that's still sort of in the spirit of Friedman. It still has sort of the same goals. It has the same assumptions about in the long run money is neutral and it only leads to inflation and doesn't affect real variables. So much of the structural model of monetarism is still there in this more modern version we're working with, but we, we focus more on the total spending rather than just on the money stock itself. Well, one of the virtues of that approach, of your approach, is that M, it's a nice thing to write down and print in a textbook mm -hmm. or <laughs> chat about, yeah. but what is it exactly? So one of the problems with uh, using the quantity of money to measure uh, whether monetary policy is doing anything or makes a difference is hard to know how to define it and then how to measure it. And there are different values, there are different measures of M, M1, M2, M3, M4, et cetera. Uh, and some people think that those have become outdated. Uh, the Fed doesn't even publish some of those anymore. They're still collected by some uh, under the uh, radar folk. The puzzle for me then is how do you know whether you're, you're doing it well or not? I mean, normally, what I, this is a great mystery to me. I've asked many guests about this, and maybe I'll finally understand it after this, after you answer. But that everyone in the outside of you and me, everyone else seems to think that we should look at interest rates. So if interest rates are low, then monetary policy is expansive, expansionary. It's loose, and uh, this then leads to a conclusion by some people, mostly Keynesians, that monetary policy is ineffective because it can't, interest rates can't go negative. So there's, they're close to the so-called zero bound, which is just a way of saying zero. Uh, and therefore monetary policy is, is, is ineffective. Can't be, nothing's left. We have to turn to fiscal policy. So I, we've talked about this before, but explain again why interest rates are misleading. And then if well, interest rates are misleading, yeah. what am I left with? Well, first of all, let me just say that although you say everybody thinks in terms of interest rates, um, you could almost do a very interesting study on, on why that is because uh, our textbooks say that interest rates are not a reliable indicator of monetary policy. And the head of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, says interest rates are not a reliable indicator um, and so on. So, And Milton Friedman said they weren't a reliable indicator. And so there's a, actually a and long worse. tradition e economics – among even not just monetarists like Friedman, but uh, again, in our textbooks, and Ben Bernanke is sort of a new Keynesian, uh, it's, it's not at all generally accepted that interest rates are a reliable indicator. I mean, interest rates tend to be very high during hyperinflation, but nobody really thinks that's tight money. So I think we have to start with the fact that uh, although when I started my blog and started talking about in interest rates being misleading, it was somehow seen as a contrarian view. It really shouldn't have been seen that way, but for whatever reason it was at the time. 
And then the, the other part of that is that interest rates really need to be seen as conditions in the credit market that reflect the condition of the economy. So uh, generally speaking, there are two things that will make interest rates low. One is low inflation and the other is a weak economy. There's other factors as well, but those are the two main ones. And obviously we have both right now. We have relatively low inflation and we have a very weak economy. So that's why interest rates are low. Uh, interest rates tend to be high during a peak of a business cycle and they tend to be high when inflation rates are very high, like the 1970s. So that's, that's my starting point about interest rates. Now, then if you look at monetary policy, you've got this problem. A tight money policy is likely to do two things. It'll make inflation lower and a tight money policy will push an economy into a recession. Well, both of those things tend to reduce interest rates, right? Low inflation and recession. So Milton Friedman once said, low, uh, very low interest rates, like in Japan, he was talking about Japan at the time, are a sign that money has been tight. And I know that sounds contrarian, but it's very much consistent with basic economic theory, even to some extent Keynesian theory. So, so how do you reconcile that with the fact that if you asked, I think, Ben Bernanke or most observers, they would say that monetary policy has been wildly out of control and expansive. All right. Well, what I would do if I was asking Ben Bernanke is I would quote him from 2003, where he said that the only reliable way of looking at monetary policy is to look at uh, uh, the rate of growth in nominal GDP and inflation. So that's what he said. And then I would point out that since 2008, those two on average, if you average the two, have been the lowest since Herbert Hoover was president. So using his own words, it's inescapable that money over the last five years has been tighter than at any time since Herbert Hoover was president. And then I would ask Ben Bernanke, why have you now changed your views and why are you saying money is unquestionably accommodative when in 2003 the criteria you laid down suggests it's actually very tight? And, put, so I would put and how would he answer spot. that? <laughs> How would he answer that? I He's not a fool. Don't know. He's a smart I person. Wish a report, I wish a reporter would ask him at a press conference, quote well, him from 2003. In 2006, I asked Milton, why is it that if it's the quantity of money that matters, and again, you can debate whether we can measure it or not, you can debate you know, whether there's offsetting changes in velocity, but Milton basically was a quantity guy. And I said, why does the Fed always talk about interest rates? And he says it makes him feel better makes them feel important that they're doing something, they're manipulating, they're steering the, the interest rate. Do you think Ben Bernanke got that disease once he got into the chair? No, well, look, I think that um, it, it's a little more complicated than that. First of all, the Fed does have a short-term impact on interest rates. And it is true that when they do an easy money policy, it's often the case that in the very short run, uh, short-term interest rates will fall. Sometimes long-term interest rates go up at the same time. So it's kind of confusing there. But so there's a grain of truth in the, obviously if there wasn't a grain of truth in it, they wouldn't be talking this way. Um, the other thing is, I think they overweight how important interest rates are to what's called the transmission mechanism. So if you ask the average person, why does monetary policy affect the economy? Most people either wouldn't have a clue or the only answer they would be able to give is they'd say, well, you know, if the Fed cuts interest rates, it's more likely that I'll go out and buy a home 
or borrow money to start a business. That's what right? the business community. That's what the business journalism community writes over and over again. It's why right. they, it's why they say we're in a. They, they, it's why they say monetary policy is ineffective because they can't drive. You know, interest rates are low. That encourages investment, but they can't drive it any lower. But that seems ridiculous. That's not what well. We, it is, <laughs> and, and often people people at some level know it's ridiculous, so they'll often say both things. So in the Great Depression, for instance, the business community had two objections to easy money. One objection was it's pushing on a string; it won't do anything because interest rates are already near zero. And the other was. Well, if Roosevelt keeps doing that, we'll have hyperinflation like Germany had. So those were their two objections. It can't do anything, and it do, does too much. Now, in case you think that's just the Depression, the Bank of Japan has said we're in the both same. things. They've yep. said, well, we can't do any more, and if, if you force us to do what you're asking us to do, we'll get high inflation. But that's And it's the same thing right now. It's and, a contradiction. And, and let, yeah. but let me ask you what I think – I have two more questions on this this theme, which is – so you're saying that monetary policy has been loose but not tight, and yet – I mean tight but not loose, sorry. Monetary policy has been mm-hmm. contractionary despite the, right. the talk, despite the low interest rates. But you look right. at the Fed's balance sheet. It's gone nuts. It's the base well, again, money, the, base money, is, high-powered money is, is, is so big. The Fed's been so active. There's been all this quantitative easing. How can you say that monetary policy hasn't been accommodated, hasn't been active or loose? All right, well, let me point some things out. Um, just first of all, so your listeners don't think I'm completely crazy here, there's a pretty general consensus among economists today that monetary policy in the early 30s was contractionary. Okay, that, that, that period of time where we had big deflation. This is Milton Friedman's view, Ben Bernanke's view, it's the view in the textbooks. It's pretty widely accepted that monetary policy was contractionary. Now, what you don't often hear is that under Herbert Hoover, they did QE. They did quantitative easing. They, when interest rates fell close to zero, they started to do big open market purchases of bonds in 1932. And between 1930 and 33, the monetary base rose very sharply. Not as sharply as recently, but then they weren't paying interest on reserves either. So <clears throat> that's, that's one of the things that is a quirk in the modern system. All this money the Fed has supposedly been, quote, printing actually hasn't been printed. Almost all of it is an electronic entry in a bank, you know, deposit at the Fed that the banks earn interest on. And therefore, really what the Fed is doing is they're swapping one kind of interest-bearing liability of the government called treasury securities for another interest-bearing liability of the government called bank reserves at the Fed. They're just swapping one for another. But that if just, they truly but Scott, were printing money, they'd be the supply of cash in our wallets would be going up a lot, right. like it did in Germany in the hyperinflation. But now that has gone up some. There has been some increase in cash in circulation. But that's really a reflection of the fact that when interest rates fall to zero and you can't really earn anything in the bank anyway, people do prefer to carry a little more cash than during normal times. But it's been a very small increase in actual cash in circulation. It's been mostly this reserve game they're playing of shuffling between two assets, treasury securities and bank reserves, which are both interest-bearing. Is, isn't That's that... not printing money in the hyperinflation sense of Germany, which is non-interest-bearing. But, but, yeah. do, but doesn't your observation then just prove your, the critic's point? 
you're saying they haven't really done anything. So doesn't that just another way of saying monetary policy is ineffective? They've done all this quote stuff. It's just not. It's just on the books. It's not real. And so monetary policies had very little impact. What would well, you have done, had them done? done? What would you done have done the wrong stuff? What should they have they've, done? They okay. The way you have to think about monetary policy is sort of do the reverse thought process from everyone. Everyone thinks in terms of gestures and then waiting around to see if they succeed. The way you think about monetary policy, in my view, is you start with success and then work backwards and ask, what do we need to do? So let's say the target is um, 5% growth in nominal GDP. Okay. So you start by announcing you're going to do whatever it takes so that the markets expect 5% nominal GDP growth to occur, whatever it takes even if you have to buy up all of planet Earth. Now, you're not going to have to do that. And in fact, if you announce that target, you probably will end up doing less QE than we've actually done. So the countries that have the most inflationary policies today, like Australia, for instance, have the smallest amount of money printing going on. And the ones that have the most deflationary policies, like Japan, have the largest amount of money printing which I know goes against common sense, but it reflects the fact that when you expect faster growth in nominal spending, you don't want to sit on cash as much. So the amount of printing of money the Fed has to do is really determined by what the public wants to hold. Okay, I'm going to back up because this is kind of hard to grasp. Let me give you an analogy with something your listeners may have heard about, like the gold standard. Let's take that as an analogy. Uh, under the gold standard, the way it worked was the government would set a price of gold and basically say, okay, the public can hold as much cash as it wants. It's up to the public. We will supply whatever they want by, in terms of bringing gold to the central bank and asking for cash. So it'll be completely demand determined. Does that make sense? Yeah, keep going. Okay. So... Um, what you're doing there is you're sort of like targeting the price of gold and then letting the market determine the money supply and interest rates. That's a gold standard. Now, what I'm proposing is instead of targeting the supply of gold, you target something like a nominal GDP futures contract, or at least you target market expectations. So you say, look, we're going to watch the markets and we're going to supply money until the markets expect nominal GDP growth to be at least 5% if that's the target. Now, then the next question I always get is, well, how much money would they have to print? They've already printed so much and it hasn't done much. My answer would be it's very possible they'd have to print less because when people expect faster growth, they have less incentive to just sit on cash that doesn't earn interest. But you're assuming, and by the way, I would stop paying interest on reserves, too. I would tell the banks, you're not going to earn any interest on reserves. We're going to get faster growth in the economy. If you want to sit on that cash and earn nothing, that's fine. We'll supply all you want to sit on, but we're not going to pay you interest on it. And instead, we're going to target nominal GDP. You'd find that banks actually wouldn't want to sit on as much cash if they expected faster growth in nominal GDP. I agree with all that. The problem is, is that you assume, and you may be right, but you may not be right, you assume that the promise is credible. You assume that because yeah. Ben Bernanke in our imaginary world in 2008 
instead of doing what he did, he had said, we're not gonna let nominal GDP fall. We're gonna make sure that it grows at say 5% a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're assuming that people would say, oh, I, well, I don't wanna hold money just sitting around. I'm gonna, I'm gonna invest it. But maybe the reason that they're not investing it, and I'm, I mean, by the way, Scott, you know, I'm, I'd love to believe what you're saying. I think it's, I think it's lovely and it's got a certain aesthetic uh, appeal to it. But, but it, it could be that it just, the reason they're not investing that money, the banks, is that the economy stinks. There's not many good, attractive investments. And so Ben Bernanke can talk all he wants. He can try to change expectations. Yeah. How do we know we can change them? Okay, I've got sort of three interrelated answers to that. One is there's really no example in all of human history of a fiat money central bank trying to inflate and failing because of a lack of credibility. So that would be my first answer. My second would be um, there are techniques that can be used to sort of lock in credibility. Uh, Now, Roosevelt used devaluing the dollar against gold. I would not suggest that today because gold doesn't play the same role in the economy. I've talked about nominal GDP futures markets, but um, even if they don't go that far, um, it's surprising how little the central bank has to do to change expectations, not how much. Let me give you an example. Over the last, oh, say three months, the, the Bank of Japan has not even come close to doing what I'm proposing. They're sort of being dragged kicking and screaming into uh, a world of a 2% inflation target. Uh, In fact, they don't want to do that, and uh, the government is trying to push them in that direction. I would actually want the central bank to enthusiastically endorse 2% inflation target because that would be far more credible. So even in this worst case of Japan where you have a dysfunctional central bank that's not cooperating, isn't doing the right things to create credibility, what they've been able to do is, in three months, depreciate the yen dramatically. And and we've seen the market respond to specific announcements coming out of the government on monetary policy. So we know they're linked. Speeches by the new prime minister and so on. The stock market's up, what, 45% in the last three months, phenomenal increase. And again, the stock price increases have been strongly linked to various public statements from the administration. They're proposing a higher inflation target of 2%. Of course, as you know, they've had mild deflation in recent years. So here's a case of a central bank doing far far less than I would ask them to do. And in a situation where I would even be doubtful if it would have any credibility given how little enthusiasm they have for this. And yet the market seemed to have treated it very seriously. And and the actual exchange rates and stock prices and other variables have moved very strongly in just a a hope that they'll do what the government wants them to do. Still no promise out of the central bank that they're actually going to hit a 2% inflation target. So let me restate my question. Let me say it a slightly Mm -hmm. different way. You're saying that if the Central Bank of the United States, if Ben Bernanke had done exactly the same thing that he actually did, which was to buy up huge amounts of of mortgage-backed securities from the balance sheets of banks, injecting uh, their reserves into the banks, which they now hold at the Fed. As you say, it's just a a, – and they bought some treasuries too. But those are just accounting things that they did. They they increased the reserves that banks held at the Fed by buying up their, their assets. If they had done that and at the same time not paid 
interest on those reserves and at the same time said they were had a different policy that they wouldn't have had to do as much of it and the economy would be healthier yeah, absolutely i think that if if um if they had had a more robust policy especially back in 2008 a policy like the australians had keeping nominal gdp growth uh, at least a long term along a trend line um I think it's very possible. First of all, it's possible interest rates never would have gotten to zero because if you're growing, if your nominal GDP is expected to grow at 5%, your demand for credit is going to be much stronger. So Australia, interestingly, was the one developed country that didn't have a recession this time around. Everybody else did pretty much. And guess what? Their interest rates never fell to zero. Almost all the other countries saw interest rates fall virtually to zero. Now, if you really believe low interest rates were easy money, you would have to believe that the one country that had the tightest monetary policy in the yeah. world of the developed countries somehow avoided a recession in 2009. In fact, what, what actually happened in Australia is they, they um, had a stronger uh, nominal GDP growth track, um, a little higher than I would recommend for the United States, by the way, but... Um, they've averaged, you know, closer to six or seven percent nominal GDP growth over over a decade, and it did dip a little bit, but then it came back, and um, so they've been able to maintain uh, sort of that trend line pretty well, and as a result, they actually haven't had to inject much money at all. They're what's called the monetary base. That's the money actually printed by the government plus bank reserves. It's only 4% of GDP in Australia. It's 18% here, 23% in Japan. So the irony is the central bank that has the most expansionary policy, which is the Australian one of the developed countries, looks like it's doing the least and it's actually doing the most. It has the smallest monetary base and higher interest rates. But how do and the I... country that seems to be doing the most effort Japan, which has had interest rates near zero for you know 15 years and has a huge increase in their monetary base, even larger than the United States, they've had deflation for 15 years. But how do I know what's causing what? You've got to be arguing that in Australia, the central bank had this clear policy and everybody knew what was going to happen, so they didn't have to do as much. Whereas here, we were we didn't understand monetary theory, monetary policy, and we just – we just tried to just print the money without changing the expectations, and so nobody believed it, and it just kind of slumped along. How do you know it's not – there were real things going on in the economy that are causing those changes? Well, there, there, there definitely were real things that caused monetary policy to go off course. All right, so that's true. In other words, let's take the housing bubble, for instance. Um, I don't – I'm not trying to argue that the uh, entire crash of the housing bubble was due to mistakes in – contractionary monetary policy. I think the second half of the decline in 08, 09 was, but the first part was due to, you know, uh, you could call it a real shock and there's all sorts of theories about what went wrong with the housing market. I don't have anything interesting to say on that subject other than that when the crash did occur, it did tend to depress what's called the natural rate of interest. So one of the reasons that interest rates hit zero in the United States was um, what I regard as an overly tight money that led to low expectations and nominal GDP growth. But another big reason that interest rates hit zero 
was the demand for credit fell sharply um, with the crash of the housing sector. So that was a real shock. As it pushed interest rates towards zero, we, we discovered that the Fed actually didn't have a plan B for operating at zero interest rates, even though Ben Bernanke in his academic writings said, well, even at zero rates, the Fed can do lots of things. So it's not necessarily a big problem. But I think what we discovered is Ben Bernanke and the Fed are two different entities. So there's the academic Ben Bernanke that was telling the Japanese they should have done all these things at zero rates. And then there was the Federal Reserve, which is a big institution. It's conservative. It's hard to move in a radical way in terms of new ideas, new concepts. So once we got to zero interest rates, it was almost immediately apparent around uh, late 2008 that the Fed really didn't have a backup plan. They had no plan for preventing nominal GDP growth from plummeting and staying, and this is very important, from staying well below the trend line. They had no plan for getting a recovery in the economy other than keeping interest rates low, crossing their fingers, and hoping that it would work even though after 15 years it hasn't worked in Japan. But you make it sound like they're doing nothing. They weren't doing nothing. They were massively no. intervening in asset markets. Right. They were okay. buying so, up stuff and, and they so were... So then they, they did... Yeah, you're right. So they did buy a lot of uh, securities. And um, I don't know how much of the failure of that to work was the reason that it didn't work in Japan, which was just bearish expectations. And how much of it was their decision to pay interest on reserves? It was some combination of the Fair two. Fair enough. Um, and for whatever reason, um, it didn't. But they also did it in such a way that was almost calculated to fail. For instance, they, they said, now, now don't worry, we're going to pull all this money back out of circulation at the slightest sign of an uptick in inflation. Well, actually, you'd be better off when you have a severe slump of trying to get back to the trend line. And to do that, that's going to require inflation to be a little bit above 2% in the recovery phase, just as we had deflation between 2008 and 9. But the Fed decided they wouldn't risk that, so they've consistently told the public that they're not going to allow inflation above 2% until, and now I have to back off, a few months ago they changed policy and said that... Um, they'll tolerate inflation up to 2.5%. And um, that's still not the, the best way of doing it. They should be targeting nominal GDP. But that policy change probably was significant. You know, that, that does seem to have changed expectations a little about monetary policy going forward. And, and, and we'll probably get to that later if we well, get into the policy questions. But in terms of what went wrong back in 2008 and nine, there big mistake was not to do what Ben Bernanke told the Japanese to do 10 years ago, which was to do something called level targeting, promise to get back to the same trend line that you left during the recession. So let me give you uh, a, a different version of this story that um, about how money matters. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a different uh, story about the ineffectiveness of monetary policy, but, and that's Steve Hankey's which which I associate in some degree with Milton Friedman's, maybe more than yours. And you can try to see where they where your story fits in with these other stories, if, if I have the story right, which is the following. Anki on this program a few episodes back said, well, 
if um, it's true the Fed's expanded the monetary base dramatically, but it's not been enough to offset the collapse in what he called bank money. That is, I assume he's referring to the shadow, uh, the, sh- the collapse of the shadow banking sector in 2008 and nine. Mm-hmm. That this enormous reduction in liquidity as banks went either bankrupt or were insolvent uh, and were had to be bailed out as they pulled in their loans, as people deleveraged, as people stopped borrowing, as people paid off loans, that the money supply properly measured, and he uses M4, uh, mm-hmm. shrank. And although the government was very active, it didn't do enough. And similarly, you argued that that the Fed was active in 1932 – uh, but Milton would say, well, they, they weren't active enough. The money supply still fell dramatically through, uh, the, the, through the early part of the 30s. Uh, how does your That's story right. fit in with those stories? Well, it fits in very closely. The only difference is that they look at the impact of the money actually produced by the Fed, which is called the monetary base, and how it impacts the broader aggregates like M2 or M4. Uh, I look at the money produced by the Fed, the monetary base, and look at how it impacts nominal GDP. But the basic story is essentially the same. In both case, all three of us believe that the money created by the Fed itself, the base, wasn't done in such a way that it stabilized whatever the target variable be, whether it be M4 or nominal GDP. So we just have a slightly different, you know, view on what's the optimal target variable, but the the essential underlying analysis is very similar. That's right. But your the difference, if I understand it correctly, is that in your story, it's the setting of expectations. It does seem kind of magical, Scott. It's not the actions that they took that failed. It's they didn't talk about it the right way. Is that fair? Yeah, but the talk is the most powerful action they have. And the reason why is very interesting. Um, here's something people don't think about. What really matters is not what the Fed is doing now, but what it's expected to do in the future. Let me give you a a quick example. Probably your listeners have heard about what's called the quantity theory of money, that if you double the money supply, the only thing that happens is you get inflation, right? Prices would double and nothing real would change. You know, just everything would be twice as expensive. That's the quantity theory of money, but it only applies if the monetary increase is permanent. Because think about this. Suppose the Fed announced we're going to double the money supply for four weeks and then we're going to bring it back down to the original level. I don't think there's any quantity theorists on earth who would say, oh, the price level will double for four weeks and then it'll fall back down to the original level. Because think about it. Would you buy a house uh, that went up from 200000 to 400000 for four weeks and then drop back down to 200000 Obviously not. No one would pay the 400000 So when you have a monetary injection, it's not going to have much effect on the price level unless it's expected to be permanent. And that means that what really matters when we set asset prices, house prices, gold prices, stocks and bonds, every asset out there is priced based on what people think the Fed will be doing in the future. Now, they may not realize that. They may think in terms of vague phrases like confidence. You know, Do I have confidence that the real estate market will be strong over the next five years? But they're really thinking about nominal GDP growth, even if they've never heard that phrase. Or am I confident my income will be growing over the next five years? So what really matters is confidence in a stable but positive monetary policy 
going forward over a number of years. And that's why talk is the most important thing the Fed does. It's talk not just out of thin air, but talk about specific things the Fed will be doing in the future. And since the specific things they'll do in the future determine the value of asset prices today, that's the most important part of Fed policy, signaling, communication, whatever you want to call it. And what it does this day, this week, this month, is much, much less important than what it's expected to do one, two, three, five years out in the future as a path of policy over time. Yeah, well, I, I certainly agree that expectations matter a lot. Uh, well, let's shift gears, and we'll, of course, come back to this by, as we shift but that's gears. But so. that's what talk is about. It's about expectations. Right, but talk is that, cheap, that, and it's the question is whether you can talk in ways that are credible you know, if Ben Bernanke had, he'd have to, you have to talk and you have to act in ways that make your talk credible. You know, they, they are very credible. Um, they, the central banks a few decades ago said, oh, we blew it back in the 70s. Now we understand the Taylor principle. So we're going to start targeting inflation around 2%. You know, almost all the major central banks started doing that. And they basically succeeded in giving us an average inflation rate of about 2%. So people know that central banks can, when they say they're going to do something, they know they can do it. And again, with the Japanese case very recently, we've seen very vague statements have an immense impact on Japanese markets, which means people absolutely do pay attention to what the central bank says. Well, I think that's Uh, true. But go ahead. I I, I think I cut you off. So I want to shift gears, I said, but it's really just a, a variant on the current conversation, which is that you wrote recently that Keynesianism, this whole idea that there's a possibility even a fiscal stimulus is a fraud. You said there, there's no uh, evidence that the fiscal stimulus of 2009 had any impact, and it's a um, it's scientifically empty is how I would describe it. But you called yeah. it, I think, a fraud. What, what was your point there? Well, um, first of all, I need to explain the, the underlying reasoning here. We have to start with the fact that during normal times, when interest rates are positive, almost all um, sort of mainstream macroeconomists agree that monetary policy is the proper tool for stabilizing the economy, not fiscal policy. So a lot of your listeners who may have studied, you know, intro to economics a few decades ago might have been taught that the Keynesians believe in using fiscal stimulus during recessions. Actually, that was abandoned by the late 1990s. The so-called new Keynesians decided, no, you know, the Fed should just steer the economy with a 2% inflation target, and we shouldn't use fiscal stimulus anymore. And the reason is very simple. Both of those tools are aiming at uh, what's called aggregate demand or total spending in the economy, right? If you're already using monetary policy to get the optimal path of spending, then there's no possible role that fiscal policy could possibly play. You've already you know, determine the path through monetary policy. So fiscal policy becomes completely redundant. It's also less efficient. There's long lags. Congress isn't very good at, you know, smoothing out business cycles and it runs up budget deficits. There's just all sorts of reasons that monetary policy is better for stabilizing the economy. Now that part is not controversial. Here's where it gets controversial. When interest rates fall to zero, is there, a, once again, an argument for using fiscal stimulus? Paul Krugman and others say, yes, 
now at zero interest rates, there's a, po there's a powerful argument for using fiscal stimulus because monetary policy is ineffective. However, Paul Krugman and others also say, well, monetary policy actually could do a lot more if the Fed were really willing to be aggressive, but they're just sort of like too conservative to do the things they really need to do. Therefore, we need fiscal stimulus. And my response to the Keynesians is, well, then you're sort of arguing for fiscal stimulus on the basis of incompetent monetary policy, which is defensible. But if you look more closely at the Fed and ask, in what way are they incompetent? They're not incompetent, in my view, in the right way to make fiscal stimulus work. Let me explain that. Fiscal so and monetary. Fiscal. In other words, what I talk about is what's called a monetary offset. So the easiest way to see this is that if fiscal stimulus really did boost aggregate demand, it would raise inflation some, at least a little bit. Now, if the Fed is targeting inflation, it will just tighten monetary policy to offset that. It'll prevent inflation from rising, and it will thwart the intention of the fiscal stimulus. So in order to make fiscal stimulus work, you need an incompetent central bank. You need one that isn't effectively targeting inflation or whatever goal variable it has, and instead just sort of passively lets fiscal stimulus move inflation up and down according to the whim of Congress. But I would argue that this vision the Keynesians have of monetary policy becoming passive at a zero interest rate is simply flat out wrong. Yes, the Fed has been too cautious, they've been too conservative to promote the sort of recovery that both Krugman and I would have liked to see, but they've been passive in a very specific way. Once we fell into recession, they were very clear in the sense of like this much recession and no more. So the Fed started to do very aggressive things every time the economy seemed to falter. First QE1, then QE2, then they did something called Operation Twist, then they did QE3, then they did something called the Evans Plan for signaling uh, inflation and unemployment targets. So they've done like at least five major unconventional actions that they adopted at various points when the monthly data seemed to show the recovery was faltering. And by doing all those specific actions, they've been able to keep nominal GDP growth growing at about a 4% rate, pretty much regardless of what was happening to fiscal policy, whether it was expansionary or contractionary. It, it didn't make a lot of difference. And this year, a lot of Keynesians said, well, you know, we've had these tax increases. Now the economy is really going to slow because our models say that's a fiscal austerity. And at the beginning of the year, I said, no, probably GDP is going to grow just as fast in 13 as 12, even though they've raised the payroll tax and they've raised taxes on the rich and they've cut some spending recently sort uh, of. and so on. And the spending is debatable, but yeah. there's no question that at the end of 2012, they did enough fiscal tightening, according to the Keynesian models, to knock about one and a half points, I believe, off of GDP. That was at least what I've been seeing in the Keynesian articles. Now, we'll see how it plays out, but it wouldn't surprise me at all as GDP is just as strong this year as last year because the Fed's actions, which were taken partly to offset this fiscal cliff 
will essentially neutralize the effect of it. And uh, by the way, you can find statements by people at the Federal Reserve pointing to the dangers of the fiscal cliff as one of the reasons for the you know, fairly extraordinary actions they took late last year, or at least actions that were sort of unprecedented in technique, let's say. I, I wouldn't say their actions were that powerful, but they were certainly a move in the direction of um, setting some explicit targets for the economy. And in my view, the expansionary effects of that are probably large enough to offset the contractionary effects of the tax increases. And if there are spending cuts with this sequester, which we'll have to kind of wait and see. But, um, you know, I think you're still going to get the same sort of growth. Um, in fact, uh, recently I've seen some articles suggesting growth is even picking up a little bit in the last few months, which is exactly the opposite of what should have happened if the fiscal austerity model was correct. So, so no, I don't think fiscal policy has an effect because I think the Fed neutralizes it. They have their own targets. So let's um, – and, and do you think they neutralize the effects of the 2009 stimulus then? That's a harder thing um, to know for sure. But here's the argument that I made recently. What if we had done no fiscal stimulus at all? So you recall in early 2009, the stock market had crashed – Unemployment was soaring. There were a lot of articles about another depression coming. The banking system was in severe trouble. Everything looked extremely bleak. The stock market was, I think, less than half of its current level. What if the government announced, well, fiscal policy will do nothing to save us from a depression? We can't afford it. It's supposed right. to, yeah. So all the attention of the economics profession and the pundits and the journalists would have been on the Fed is our only hope. And they would have dug up immediately Ben Bernanke's writings that, you know, the, the Fed can prevent another depression. The Japanese should have done all these things. And we should have done all these things differently in the early 30s. And they would start asking the Fed, now, why are you not doing the things that Ben Bernanke told the Japanese they should be doing? Like level targeting which to this day the Fed has not done. And I think the Fed would have been under enormous pressure. And I think Ben Bernanke himself would have wanted to do a lot more in those circumstances. Now, I can't say for sure, but if the Fed had adopted something like a level targeting plan, which Bernanke recommended on the Japanese, I think that would have been much more effective than the actual policy they did plus the fiscal stimulus. In other words, we would be today at a higher level of spending in the economy if they had done what Bernanke recommended the Japanese do about a decade ago instead of the actual policy of the Fed plus the actual fiscal stimulus. Okay, so we're almost so, out of time. And I think it's plausible they would have done that because they would have seen the emergency we were in. Now, you know, you can say that's speculative, and I, I perfectly agree with that. I can't be certain. But my point is fiscal stimulus is not a scientific concept because it's based on assumptions about Fed response or offset that are completely hypothetical. They're psychological. They're mind-reading. And they present these multipliers as if they're some sort of parameter of nature, like a scientific model, which they're not. So I'm sympathetic to that view, and I'm sympathetic to your view. 
And I'm also sympathetic, though, to what I would call a micro view of recessions, which is not quite the same maybe as the supply shock story. So let me clip. We're almost out of time. So let, let me just throw this out there and let you react to it. So the Keynesians, I hate to call them that. I'll just say Paul Krugman and others who support increased government spending to help the economy. They argue that, well, after this, something went wrong in 2008 and we didn't have enough spending because consumers lost confidence, businesses lost confidence. So gov government's got to step in and make up the difference. That's their story. Mm -hmm. Your story is, well, my story is uh, government doesn't spend money well. I don't have any reason to think that causes prosperity. And um, I, I, don't I don't assume that you can hold then everything else constant while it does that and you just get a boost in in say nominal income. Your story is something collapsed in 2008 in the nominal side of the economy and the money side. The Fed should have tried to make that up. They sort of tried. They didn't do it effectively. People, they weren't credible. And as a result, we're in a slump. The third view says all this macro stuff is just talk. There's real things going underneath the economy. I recently interviewed Ed Lemer for a project I have called The Numbers Game. I'll put a link up to that. It's an animated uh, conversation, shorter than, than econ talk, where he says uh, manufacturing sector has been falling in real terms due to productivity and globalization. Excuse me, manufacturing employment, not manufacturing output. Mm -hmm. Because of productivity and because of globalization, manufacturing employment is, has a long now negative secular trend. There's mm, decreasing numbers true. of manufacturing workers, and so recessions aren't getting the bounce back they normally get as the, if the trend were positive. Uh, Casey Mulligan on this program argued that we've changed all kinds of incentives for workers to keep them out of the labor market, and that's why unemployment is so high. How do we distinguish between these three different stories, which, you know, the world's a complex place. As a Hayekian, I like to admit that it's a complex place. As a human being with natural tendencies toward thinking I understand stuff, I want to be able to say, oh, no, no, here's the theory. You claim to have the theory. Is it possible? Do you think it's possible in your coming book or elsewhere to make the empirical case that would convince some skeptics of well, those other two stories? Try to do. Yeah, you I mean, about obviously, five minutes. <laughs> there's a lot to, to say there. I mean, I would say this. The, the, the easiest one to dispose of, I think, is the, the secular decline in manufacturing. That's true, but it doesn't really explain the cycles. So in other words, Instead of a uh, sort of a straight line downward, trending downward, which would be jobs in manufacturing, we have sort of a staircase downward, big drops in recession, then level during the recovery, then big, you know, you know what I'm saying? Picture a staircase yeah. going down to the right versus the straight line. I think it's actually negative. Line. I don't think it's so staircasey. It's a little more negative than that, but it's, you're, it's more intense yeah. during the recession. But, yeah, but okay, maybe even slightly downward during the booms. But um so that doesn't really explain the cyclicality. It just explains the trend. And, and obviously, over the long run, we've been able to make up those manufacturing jobs in the service sector. We had very low unemployment in uh, 2007, as recently as that, and and yet we'd lost millions of manufacturing jobs over decades. And before that, 100 years ago, we were losing millions of farming jobs and as people were moving to the city. So we're, we constantly get this churning but it's, it's done in a gradual way that doesn't really by itself create business cycles. Um, now, the, the Mulligan argument is a little bit tougher because there is a bit of truth in what he's saying, that during the recession, the incentives to work were reduced by things like greatly extended unemployment insurance, uh, almost two years at one point, and now it's a little bit less. 
So that probably increased the what's called the natural rate of unemployment, the rate that just exists because of people being between jobs. They, they'd be a little more picky, wait a little longer before taking that job because they could rely on more unemployment benefits. And, and other things like minimum wage could be mentioned and so on. So, But what I would say about that is that doesn't really explain how we got into a severe recession because a lot of that was done in response to the recession. And so there is a sort of an entanglement between supply and demand for the economy. When you have very bad demand-side policies and the economy crashes into a depression, the government reacts often in counterproductive ways and makes it worse. But still, we have to prevent the cyclicality that causes that in the first place. So one of my favorite examples was in the Great Depression, um, or in the 20s, the U.S. had a relatively free market economy. And as we went into the Great Depression, because of mistakes made by people that would today be called conservatives, you know, we had too tight a monetary policy and a big crash in spending, we reacted to that failure of demand with counterproductive supply-side policies under first the later period of the Hoover administration and then under Roosevelt that made the recovery much slower than it needed to be. So, and, and Mulligan would have been you know, pointing to those mistakes as to why we had such a slow recovery, and he would have been partly right. But I still think that the primary focus should be on stabilizing demand because it's those demand failures that trigger things like the extended unemployment insurance in the first place. So that's kind of how we would respond to the Mulligan argument. Are you a Keynesian? When you say demand, is there a difference between nominal no, income? I, yeah, I, I use the term um, demand synonymously with nominal GDP, which is a little different from Keynesians. They don't. But I just feel that um, sometimes it's easy to talk about demand and supply shocks. Other times I use the phrase nominal and real shocks. I mean them synonymously with supply and demand, but Keynesians define demand a little differently. They tend to think about it more in a real sense of how many goods and services are being bought. I tend to think about it in a nominal sense of like, what's the dollar amount that's being spent on goods and services in the economy? That's, that's how I think of demand. So my last, GDP. my last question, which I, mm -hmm. which I should have asked you before. So what, what happened in 2008 that, since you, you argue that nominal GDP targeting is not a tautology, mm -hmm. why did nominal GDP fall in, in 2008? Uh, it was kind of a perfect storm of bad luck. Um, so I think you have to look at it in parts. Once interest rates hit zero, the Fed didn't know what to do. So then we want to back up and ask, well, how did we get in that position? And I think the, the end of the housing bubble was part of it. So when the housing bubble burst and spending slowed very sharply, um, they, uh, the natural rate of interest started to fall quite low. It wasn't at zero yet. It was about 2% when Lehman failed, the, the interest rate. But it was falling very, very sharply. And in fact, it should have been even lower uh, the Fed did not cut interest rates after Lehman failed in their next meeting. It was still 2%. That was a mistake. And the reason they made that mistake was the other big problem, which is we happened to have this housing crash right at the same time of a huge oil price spike. So because of the oil price spike of 2008, where um, gasoline shot up from $2 to $4 a gallon in just a couple of years, 
our headline inflation number was high. The Fed was frightened about inflation. So even as nominal spending was slowing, they were really grudging in easing their policy. So by refusing to ease aggressively, they let the economy slide partly under this oil shock and partly because of the housing crash. And by the time they realized, oops, we're sliding into a deep recession, interest rates had fallen close to zero and they didn't have their normal tool, their familiar, comfortable tool of manipulating interest rates to control the economy. And then we found the Fed didn't know what to do when it couldn't use its conventional tool of adjusting interest rates. And when the market saw the Fed was adrift and didn't have a backup plan, the asset markets crashed. And that was the big crash of the second half of 2008 when markets realized we're going into a deep recession, the Fed doesn't have plan B, it's going to be really bad. And the market forecasts were correct, by the way, that that the recession would be bad. Scott, it's always interesting to talk to you. You tell fascinating stories and they could be right. I look forward to hearing more about them as we go forward. And I look forward to your book. Thank you very much. My guest today has been Scott Subner. Scott, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.